think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 106 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 107th episode. I'm Laurent Carboneau. I thought you said we were playing Age of Empires tonight. Ah, yes. Well, no, unfortunately the Turks will have to uh, wait uh, for I've already picked day. the Tudans, I'm already getting ready to build Teutonic Knights. I don't even know what we're doing here. Very good. No, all, um... And who are you again? <laughs> I mean, people should know if they listen to the podcast. I don't know why we need to introduce ourselves every time. Uh, I'm Aitzen Rainville. Oh, well, there you go. Very nice, very nice to talk to you for the hundred and seventh yes, time on this nice podcast. Nice to meet you as well. Um, well, no, because we've we've recorded one hundred and six of these in the past, so this is a, uh, like we're not meeting each other for, for anyway. Uh, this is as many uh, humans will be aware uh, the one year anniversary of uh, of nothing in particular, I suppose, really. But for us, it was the first Monday. Uh, where we were working from home. And if someone had told me uh, on that Monday, hey, by the way, in a year, you will still be in that chair. Uh, <laughs> and those are not comfortable laptop. chairs. Those are hard uh, no. kitchen chairs. Yeah, they're not great. Uh, I would have uh, been been despondent to hear it. Uh, you know, one, one of the so, very uh, first things I did was I made the call that this was going to last for a very long time, and I got my office chair. And uh, I absolutely yes. do not regret that being one of the first. And no, my desktop. And it, it, I, I it, completely yeah. committed to just gutting my office of everything I needed for the long term. I, and I think that was very wise. As you know, I live in a one-bedroom apartment, and this was not a, a luxury available you, to you me. You could was, fit an uh, office chair in your one-bedroom apartment. That would not have been. We do have, we do have one office chair now. Uh, which is my partner's and, and was provided to her by the government of Canada for use in work. Um, but I do not have uh, a taxpayer-funded uh, office chair I would myself. have went and grabbed and your we, chair. We have room for and, one. Like, skateboard wheeled it home, like, the five blocks to your apartment. It would have been fine. Yes, you know, in hindsight, maybe I should have done that, but yeah, I didn't. Too late, you're so, committed. It's uh, you know, gambler's fallacy. I, at this point, I'm just going to write it out in my, my, my sort of uh, kitchen table chair. The number chair. one thing I screwed um, up in uh, gutting my office was I left a bottle of Cholula on my desk, and when I went back... Yes, I remember the pale Cholula was very <laughs> terrifying back, looking when you went and emptied uh, out your office. At that office at one point, it was uh, a very sickening looking bottle of Cholula, which is yeah, did not, by far the best hot sauce uh, known to man. So there's there's that. It, it did not look good. It was certainly not of Cholula's usual standard. Let's put <laughs> it that way. Was it the way. sun too? I'm, I'm uh, sure that didn't help. No, I, I bet it didn't. Uh, on, on the subject of the pandemic anniversary, I just want to take take a, a trip back because I, I went and uh, did some some retrospective sleuthing uh, about just some like news conferences and, and vibe on the hill for the, the couple of days, you know, before. Let, let's take our, ourselves back to the week of the of March eighth or whatever it was uh, last year, where on the Monday everything was more or less normal. On the Thursday, it came out that. Uh, Sophie Rowe Trudeau had contracted the novel coronavirus COVID-19 while attending a Wii fundraiser (laughs) in the UK. Uh, Presumably from, or sort of people speculated from Idris Elba. Uh, And then on Friday, there was supposed to be a first minister. From Idris or she gave it to Uh, Idris. Yeah, I don't quite remember. Uh, Yes, and then there was supposed to be a first minister's meeting on Friday. 
uh, which ended up being canceled, as I recall. Yeah, I mean, had her test or symptoms showed up a little bit later, I mean, I think yeah, we, like we never she gives it she gives it to the prime minister, who then gives it to like half the premiers. Like, boy, that would have been something. The conclusive um, test result, because at the time that Trudeau was sort of suspected to have been exposed. Um, the health advice was that if he was asymptomatic, he didn't need to take a test. Um, so we never got the positive result Justin Trudeau test. Um, instead, we got Justin Trudeau self-isolating for like a month or something, um, which is very different. But there is a conceivable timeline, perhaps in some parallel universe, in which... Uh, Sophie Gregoire Trudeau got symptoms a little bit later. Um, they convened the first minister's meetings or council of the federation. I can never remember which one's which. I'm horrible at that. Council of federation is the premiers meet with each other. Okay. Generally. So the first minister's meeting. That makes sense. Yeah. It's broader. Yeah. Um, and like gave it to all of them or half of them ended up s- symptomatic like yeah. the next week. And that could have that could have gone really, yeah. really poorly. Just a... A decapitation strike on, like, every government in yeah, the country, Yeah, it is sort basically. of like the, you know, in the country that shall not be named, when they don't put all of the important people in the same room together um, during, like, State of the Union. Designated Survivor. Yeah, we could have had a really boring version of Designated Survivor. <laughs> yes. Where the respective provincial ministers of agriculture suddenly all take over the the, the reins yeah. at the same time. Prime, Prime Minister Lawrence McCauley is uh, gearing <laughs> up for his first uh, electoral challenge. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. it's it was sort of by luck that this scenario did not happen, that she was symptomatic um, soon enough to call off the whole thing. But what really stands out to me about this moment, and I'm sure I've said it on this podcast before... Oh, and I will say on the on the Wednesday, on the Wednesday, the WHO declared the pandemic. So it was like Wednesday, Thursday, yes, Friday. It, it like was one a big three days. Um, I mean, I went back and listened to the same some of the same press conferences that you were. There's a clip from yes. uh, Minister Hadju on that day saying, you know, there's not going to be a trigger point where things change dramatically. And it's like, oh, boy, were you ever wrong? But but the other yeah. thing that struck me from looking at that early sort of press um, coverage and the scrums and the media from the first few days is no one had any idea what they were doing. Like, really, they had no idea. This was a global pandemic that we didn't realize was quite as respiratory in nature as we now, uh, now know. Um, the emphasis was on surface sanitation. Um, but right. we, Fomites. we had scrums still, sort of an infamous scrum with five ministers standing in at the at the time as the horseshoe of the House of Commons, um, surrounded by the press gallery, and they were scrumming them in very close proximity, uh, which it, it just it's inconceivable now that that would happen that there wasn't even a modicum of consideration given for social distancing at all. Yes. Well, and to me, the really funny part was uh, in the so it was literally, I I think the the WHO had declared the pandemic somewhere around midday, and then they got uh, Minister Haidu on outs out of the out of QP, uh, you know, looking for a reaction to declaring the pandemic, and she says something that has stuck with me because it's so funny and so completely different than what ended up happening. She said, Oh, in 10 years, we might all still be like bumping elbows instead of shaking hands as a, as a consequence of the pandemic. And it's just like how quickly 
that became that was like a two week thing, and then we just didn't see anybody anymore. So uh, yeah, pretty good. I mean, it goes to how I don't know misguided our initial efforts were that everyone was focused on well, surface sanitation rather than respiratory. Yeah, um, where the emphasis was I mean, on oh, misguided, we're not, but we're I not think shake hands, but like oof, did we yeah. miss the mark on that? I think it goes deeper than misguided to just completely complacent, right? Like, I, I fundamentally think, and I, I believe I've said this before somewhere, is that somewhere, our you're on, federal you're on government's so cardinal... Was it, was it at McDonald's? <laughs> our, was it at our, Wendy's? Where did you say this? <laughs> <laughs> the federal government's cardinal sin so far has been excessive deference, I think. Um like when deference to whom? Teresa Tam came out deference sorry. to whom De- well this is okay you're just getting there. All right. when yeah when Teresa Tam came out and said in like February the risk to Canadians is low and I, I did a quick search for this is what's the latest day I could see people saying the risk <laughs> to Canadians is low and in fact it was Black Friday the 13th <laughs> Uh, of last March, where I could still find references to the risk to Canadians is low. I think them saying that fundamentally, the federal government, of course, they were busy at the time with the pipeline stuff, and they they, they sort of were like, okay, well, you know what? They said the risk to Canadians is low. Let, let's move on. We got other things. We got our fish to fry here. Um, and then it really snuck up on them. And they, like, I, I had filed an access information request at one point last year about, uh, sort of deliberations at the Department of Finance about income support programs uh, before Friday, Black Friday Let the 13th. Let me guess, no responsive and documents. No responsive records. So they had not given any thought to what would later become CERB 72 hours before everyone had to start working from home and everything in the country closed, so, uh, which is really mind-blowing. This is sort of so, stunning, And then, though, of course, we had... Let me it is stunning because in the lead up to this, what we had was the example of Italy. We, Italy was. Yes. We were all watching well, like the live feeds of like empty Italian streets on cable yeah, television. And I remember. And being like, well, can't happen here. I remember being like, <laughs> wow, what's going on in Italy is incredibly dramatic. And like conversations I had with folks about like, oh, I don't think COVID's a good, uh, a big deal. And then I was like, I don't know if you've seen. We were still thinking, we were still thinking we might go to Chicago. <laughs> yes. Like, you know, two two weeks before this. I don't this. know if you've seen the anecdotes coming out of doctors in Italy about what an absolute mess that is. Maybe... Just a charnel house. Maybe like. that could happen here. Um, but that... It never seemed to be put to that. In, in the early conversations, um, or in the media interviews of that week, uh, Minister Heiju sort of speaks about their worst-case scenario forecasts. But it's all sort of from the health perspective of like mobilizing health resources. It never sort of translated yeah. into that conversation about the economic consequences of it. One of the earliest things they did, mm-hmm. which I, I sort of laugh at now in retrospect, and I think we've mentioned on here before, is their COVID package initially was a billion dollars. Um, and yeah. <laughs> uh, boy, I love the phrase. 500 of which was health transfers. Yes, I, I love the million. phrase yeah. uh, wrong by orders of magnitude. And this is perhaps one of the truest instances of that, where they were off by sort of an order of uh, 999 billion plus. Um, it's, it's, the tally is still sort of running. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that in retrospect, and it, it sounds, you know, it sounds like uh, hindsight's twenty twenty. How could we have known all this? But well, it's like yeah, and the, the answer is we had literally seen it happen in other places, literally at the same time, and we had an extra month and a half to prepare. Yes, <laughs> yes. and I think that is a very reasonable response yeah. to that question. Is why were yeah. we not doing more given the examples? Why were we of the mindset that this can't happen here? Um, that this wouldn't happen here, that the economic or that the there would be long term economic consequences, etc. Rather than, you know, we have a stockpile of masks and uh, every masks and gloves and gowns. And uh, that's that's it. That's and re uh, respirators. And that was sort of where the conversation ended um, rather than discussing sort of the, the broader societal and economic impacts of uh, a pandemic, a global pandemic, as it were. Yes. Well, I mean, like, if you take the example of the richest man in the world and thus the world's most valuable person uh, in terms of what he is able to produce for society, he was like, it'll all be over by April. Uh, Do you mean the tech king? To be. The techno, techno king. king. Yes. My, my mistake. Techno king. Yes. Uh, yeah, all that to say that I think we're going to look back at that sort of two month period between you know january and march as a what the hell were they thinking uh kind of thing so yeah there you go happy one year pandemic anniversary everyone uh <laughs> and here's <laughs> to getting vaccinated in uh i feel great relatively <laughs> short order Yes, let's hope. Uh, no thanks, of course, to uh, General Rick Hillier, who decided today to uh, throw in the <laughs> towel on uh, his role as the, the guy they were paying $20,000 a month to get up at press conferences and say, huh, I don't know. Honestly, I didn't, uh, I didn't read that so, story. In Ontario. So I can't comment intelligibly on what happened there. There I was you go. Focused on uh, other I'm sure things. People... I don't look at provincial news. I don't, I don't read provincial Indeed. stuff. Indeed. Right? No. Yes. The only thing you care about is whether or not uh, Kingston will be in red uh, <laughs> by the end of the month. <laughs> Getting the driver's <laughs> So there, yeah. Have I, I'm not sure I've talked about this. I don't think um, you have. So oh. my partner is getting her driver's or is... Uh... You don't have to call her that. You you married her twice, True. dude. I just... It, there's, I have a five-year <laughs> delay on changing titles with people. I see. Um, so my wife rather, you don't do well with names and details uh, <laughs> my wife is getting her uh g my wife. Kind of g1 exit in ontario i'm still getting used to the ontario drivers regime um but there's a lot of reporting about there being like a two-year wait period for driver's tests because of how many have been canceled over the course of covid um because turns out being in a car with someone for 20 minutes with the windows rolled up is generally not good not ideal and then cycling through a dozen or so people a day is also bad um, for sure. so there's there has been some sort of local news reporting on this but i i think it's you know a bigger issue than it's sort of given uh the media space for is if there is a two year or so backlog as is being reported in a lot of news outlets for driver's tests that is you know incredibly problematic and bad and is something that a lot of resources are eventually going to need to fix um because having new canadians middle-aged canadians just uh, young canadians whoever it is um not be able to get their driver's test 
or not be able to pass their driver's test or take their driver's test or whatever, um, get their driver's license for, you know, personal economic reasons, whatever it is, is incredibly suboptimal. And I'm really interested in sort of the stories of where on the direct service delivery side of government, there will be irreparable backlogs in terms of, uh, in terms of services that the government has been unable to deliver during this time. You know, other ones that come to mind are like parole hearings or IRB hearings or just various hearings that once upon a time were um, done in person and this created an immense backlog. The, the court system's another one. I have a parking ticket that I have been waiting a year and a half to fight, and I have no sense of when I'm going to get my day in court on that uh, or my day before the traffic administrator or whatever we do in the city of Ottawa. Um, but there's a lot of backlogs that have been created by this, and it would, I would love to see more reporting sort of comprehensively on all the different impacted areas. Yeah, well, as a, as a left-wing sicko, this is finally our chance to, to commit the war on cars. <laughs> we finally can do it. And if people can't get licenses... <laughs> there you go. I guess we don't have cars anymore, folks. Time to shut down, uh, time to shut down a bunch of roads. You know and, what you don't uh, need a license for? I guess downtown pedestrian only now. Right, folks? There you go. There you go. Uh, but no, big pain in the ass yeah. seems bad. Um, so all of that is to say we have a driver's test booked. And we are uh, very much hoping it is able to go through in the next month or so. Yes, well, inshallah, as they say. <laughs> as they say. Uh, we actually, we say that to each other a lot. I don't know that we say it on the podcast, but uh, there you go. Uh, the other thing we had mentioned uh, in terms of dates of significance was that we, we were of the mind that there was going to be a federal budget uh, next Tuesday. That, yeah, that was like it's, our it's up. On speculation date. Yes, so that date will actually not play host to uh, the, the first federal budget since uh, the 2019 one. Um, and in fact, that will be coming somewhat later. I suspect we are probably still looking in like an April-ish kind of realm. More than a May or June type of realm, personally. So I was on vacation for the 2019 budget. So for me, it feel, it was a really ill-timed vacation for my line of work. Um, but for me, it feels like it's been three years since there's been a budget because I didn't really participate in the 2019 one. Um, yes, I have come to the view that uh, this government, uh, perhaps the best slogan is later is always possible. Um, it's it's a really, it's it's a really great line. I'm trying to make it a thing as best I possibly can um, because it is <laughs> so very true. We were waiting so long for mandate letters. Uh, they, oh, yeah, they came forever. about six months later than they were. They had like a mini shuffle in between, <laughs> like having to do the mandate letters. Yes, like, which is very convenient because then they were like, oh, well, we had to shuffle again and now we'll do mandate letters. Um, but in terms of budget timing, it seems like, I mean, the timing looked, everything looked good for March, but this government is one that has, uh, trouble making hard decisions and as a result things get pushed and so it's really looking like april is what i would bet on it is pretty inconceivable in my mind that it gets pushed anywhere further than april um i mean this is problematic in some regards there the presumption is there will be uh spending announced for significant things in the budget um things that are responsive to covid 
uh, a lot of those things get bumped by a month as a result of pushing the budget a month. The, yes. the federal yeah. public service is not able to push through treasury board submissions and whatever else it is. Um, they can't just run commercials for stuff they haven't passed through parliament yeah, well, <laughs> well, at least for things they haven't announced yet. This government has been doing a lot, naturally has been doing a lot of off-cycle uh, budget announcements. Sure. Um, or, sorry, not budget announcements, but spending announcements, um, which I presume those, will yes. be sort of caught up with in this budget. Um, but there are a lot of groups sort of waiting for things in this budget and pushing things a month well is very suboptimal and what well i'll do my little rabbities here for the the stakeholder communities right um from the government's perspective if they need the additional time you know if it's life or death then sure but it generally it is good to get money out on time and announcements out on time and to set the direction earlier rather than later Oh, I, I, did you have? Yeah, okay, that was, that, that was bad timing. Taking a sip of beer, but the, there we are. Okay. That, that was the end well, of my what spiel. I would, what I would say on the, the timing portion of this is that if you do a, a mid-April-ish, or perhaps even slightly later and into late April, you get like a good two, three weeks to sort of have everyone take the budget home and and sell it to people, and that takes you about to a May uh, date where you can then decide that you want to have an election, and then you're uh, all done by sort of mid-June when Parliament will normally wrap up, uh, which is, I, I think we've been pretty, all, I think we've been pretty agreed that a sort of June election is pretty likely, so expect that budget to be uh, very much about what they can bring to people uh, on the doorstep during an Yeah, election. so what, what are the normal considerations on a on an average year that I would throw into the mix here is sort of the, the parliamentary agenda? Um, to what extent it's true is sort of a toss-up for any given uh, government. But I would normally make the point that a government has the incentive to run the clock on the parliamentary calendar as long as possible in order to get critical pieces of legislation passed. Um, for yes, typically. Typically. For many reasons, this parliamentary session has been... Uh, how, how do I put it? Very unproductive in, in sort of the, the classic sense. There isn't a ton mm. of legislation moving, and there's multiple reasons for that. Parliament, you know, it's a minority parliament. Things have been sort of jammed up um, due to uh, an absence of opposition support. The government requires, uh, I mean, in the case of a recent bill, the support of the Bloc Québécois in order to um, impose closure or time allocation. I can't remember which one it was. Um, so the, the parliamentary side of things that I would normally throw into the mix um, doesn't really seem to be a factor here. The most significant uh, parliamentary deadline or piece of legislation on a timeline that they seem to be working with is the medical assistance in dying, uh, the MAID legislation, yes. which is, uh, it's been missing, uh, it's missed a number of deadlines, court-imposed deadlines thus far. Um, I, it's not a it's not a piece of legislation I've been following tremendously closely, so I, I won't say much more than that on it. Um, but the timeline on that one is sort of the only one the government seems to be working towards. There aren't a ton of other pertinent uh, legislative deadlines, which may mean that basically all of the legislation, the privacy legislation, the uh, 
I don't know how I sum well, up for, the legislation. Well, I'll take one prominent example. legislation introduced by the, you, uh, Gilbo. Um, but all of that stuff yeah. is sort of, you know, nice to haves in in a broad sense, but is not stuff that the, the government would uh, orient its strategic planning around. No, and I think if there, there's one that I think they, they probably, well, it's not going to happen, but for instance, the UN Declaration of Rights uh, of Indigenous Peoples uh, legislation is one that they have been pushed really, really, really hard to get passed because a substantively similar bill passed the House of Commons in the last parliament uh, when it was Romeo Saganesh's private member's bill uh, and then died in the Senate, as did many others. Um so it, there's there's a big desire there to see that pass but you get to the point where they can kind of hold their own stuff hostage to an election right you say like look you want the bill like you, you give us a majority and we'll get it done right like um you know liberals have been big fans of that trick for for quite a long time i still hear people blaming the ndp <laughs> oh, for what not about having, us not having universal yes. child care there was like a, a liberal cabinet minister getting charged with a crime every week and they're like, oh, it's the NDP's fault. Sorry. It's pretty good. Uh, love to hear that. Uh, but yes, I think that that will be uh, the, the sort of like hostage taking of their own stuff will be uh, will be something to see. Yeah, I mean, that's the play, right? Is to put put things in the window. Um, to what extent the budget serves this exact same function, I think is uh, reasonably high. The, the budget will be more or less a budget implementation act will probably be passed in my estimation um which will trigger a lot of sort of immediate short-term spending um but budgets these days are often uh very forward-looking documents the time span accounting for is basically approaching 2030 um on some line items uh so that really puts it in the window for yeah they love backloading stuff for, too, well budgets, yeah backloading things especially. is a, a very nice <laughs> trick when you're writing yeah. a budget right um yes because you're able to spend money uh on future governments and presuming you're still government when when those decisions are made you're hoping to keep to those commitments um but other governments may cut those but that's a reason to vote for us um yes. so I, I would expect to see one i mean we have the promise of a lot of short-term spending a lot of sort of three years is the window that the government has been committed to in relation to its COVID spending. Um, but there are examples in recent announcements, i.e. the transit announcement, where I think it was out to 20, I'd have to double check, but I think it's 2028. Uh, so gives you a sense of sort of some of the timelines we're playing with. Yeah. the Another bill I think will be very significant to see where it goes is the uh, election changes bill, which will sort of make running a pandemic election easier um slash possible and that one has not passed yet so i i do wonder what will happen there i mean and and what do they do right do they it's it's a very difficult situation because of the parliamentary logjam around other piece of legislation such as made um that it is hard for the government to commit all of their legislative firepower towards an election bill um because yeah, they they may just be betting that like enough people will be vaccinated by the time that, that they want to have an election that they don't yellow, really need whatever. It. Yeah, that I think that's what it comes yeah. down to. Like it would be a nice to have, but I, it, I think that's but very possible. A need, a need to have. Yeah, no, I mean, like, look, like how many other jurisdictions had <laughs> pandemic elections without tweaking their elections acts last year? Like, you know, not not a tiny. Tell number. me, tell me about what's going on in a bit of a. 
Yes. Newfoundland is still in a bit of a limbo. But actually, the one thing about pandemic elections, I think that's been learned from the Newfoundland lesson, is that governments can play fast and loose with election law during elections, and nothing can really stop them. Uh, because it's just incredibly difficult to sort of like post facto litigate election law stuff because there's a strong, you know, possession is nine tenths of the law kind of thing where the facts on the ground will kind of just stand. Yeah, because uh, and it's very hard to reverse anything. There's no remedy. Like, it's very hard for the courts to impose a remedy. Yeah, the remedy is like what you get a fresh election or you overturn people being seated. Like, it, it just had there's not really a precedent for it. Uh, at scale, so it's. And, uh, and I have a hard time seeing anything coming. While we're talking about election law, I would just note that the one of the Ontario courts—I can't remember which one—because uh, I'm not a legal guy, um, despite my early undergraduate uh, ambitions—has um, <laughs> overturned or struck down. I, I guess is probably the more uh, appropriate term. Um, part of the liberal recent uh, elections Canada legislation around false statements online. Um, which is a really significantly of note. It was sort of the main liberal elections legislation that passed in the last session of parliament. Um, the last parliament. Well, yes, true. Uh, yes. I, I will accept that answer. As a single there session of parliament. Um, but it was a bad bill. There were a tremendous amount of problems created by it, perhaps more so than it solved. Um, my bugbear in that one is around issue advertising. Um, but ultimately, it was sort of on the the free speech side that part of it was struck down um, around false statements or mistruths or whatever it is online. It turns out that it is very hard for the government to basically regulate you lying online, which makes a lot of yeah. sense, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a. Sorry, it's a big I, I ended that as a mess. And we'll, I ended that with an inflection, as if it was a question, and it was in fact not a question. It was not really a question, no. But uh, yeah, there you go. Uh, so I think those are the things to watch out for in the next next little bit here. Uh, yeah, like I said, I think we're we're both expecting a, an election really sooner rather than later. It's June. Um, it's June or September for me, and I. Yeah, yeah. No, I think June is more likely. I think the more time they let pass the more time they give Aaron O'Toole to get to, you know, introduce himself to Canadians for the eighth time. Um, and the more the election is about like, well, what now? Rather than like, thank you, Mr. Trudeau for saving us from the, the horrible virus. Um, so, I mean, like looking around the world, basically every government that didn't go out of its way to murder people got reelected. Um, Every so, every government respect. I can think of, I can't think of a single government that didn't get reelected. No, there's a there's a country somewhere immediately <laughs> south of here where that might have been the case that I've heard of, but uh, that, in, that's in, really the only one. I have possibly. no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, but then again, I think they may fail that like didn't try to actively murder people. The only there, so. so on on my compass of true north, um, where north is election timing, the only thing throwing off my compass is. Uh, my new favorite slogan of later is always possible. Um, which, uh, you know, it, it could very well be September based on that. I, I throw yeah, I mean, hands. this is like where we said in the fall that, like, they'd be dumb not to call it now, and they didn't. And I still think it was dumb for them not to call it. I think they would have won a majority really easily. Uh, but, uh, yeah, there Never you go. Never make hard decisions today that you can make hard decisions tomorrow. Exactly. 
Uh, so that that wraps us up on on that particular topic. Uh, the other thing I wanted to talk about two two recent little pieces from the uh, I would say Etienne's side of the aisle okay. more or less. Let, let me preface this with these are both your additions to the agenda things things that you were yes, passionate but, about and wanted to talk about. So so hit me. Well, yeah, no, but it's just more that they're coming from the more no, of the they, political they right. Thing I, I can else. see that, but I'm just saying yeah. this okay. this is why you get to lead in on both of them. Okay, so the first one I wanted to talk about is uh, the McDonald Laurier Institute, which uh, really has been feeling their oats recently. Just a lot of uh, a lot of publication coming out of them. It's um, nice to see from our think and tanks. I, I... Sorry, it's what was that? It's just nice to see that from our think tanks, our our Potemkin village yeah, of I think guess... tanks. Yes, yeah, our extremely Potemkin village of think tanks. Um, so they they published a a COVID nineteen misery index. Uh, that I wanted to talk about because, you know, I, there are parts of it where I think it was it was pretty good. And it's like it's an interesting attempt to do something uh, where so basically what they've done is they've taken 15 countries ranging, you know, I think these countries you could all fairly say are, are OECD, like very developed countries. You've got Norway, you've got your, your, your Canada, you've got your Japan, you've got your United Kingdom. Um uh, and they're comparing each country's misery from the pandemic across three sort of categories. The first being disease misery, the second being COVID response misery, and the third being economic impact misery. The disease stuff, I think, is for the most part pretty fair if you're looking at where the, the numbers are coming from. Like cases per million population seems reasonable. That seems like a thing you'd want to sort of note average like icu so the seriousness of uh of the of the the illness um average hospitalizations which i guess i that's not that different from the icu really but there you go deaths definitely something you'd want to count in disease misery um and go, but going down a little bit more to response miseries where i think you start running into some problems where like you have stuff like ratio of tests to cases, which is pretty reasonable. I think you know we've both been really clear all along that testing is is a good thing, and there should have been more of it. In fact, I will I will just table that remark for now, and something I want to come back to at the end uh, about the sort of pandemic versary. Um, vaccination per hundred population. There is an interesting point because it I think. If I were an uncharitable person and I would say that this is a, a somewhat right of center think tank trying to make a point that the liberal government is doing a bad job, taking your snapshot in time of vaccination right before the government starts to get a lot more vaccines is not the most charitable way to do it uh, to a government, which fair enough, like they're under no obligation to do so, but I just sort of raise my eyebrow at that. Um uh, the stringency metric they have, which is basically like the, the lockdown seriousness index, is actually reasonably interesting, and I, I highly recommend people give it a look and see what they did there. I will also post, of course, the the link to the report in the show description. Uh, unfortunately, where this, I think, falls apart a bit more is the economic misery index, where you're looking at cumulative increase in unemployment. Um there are a lot of different ways that unemployment is measured across countries. And I think they did some attempt to sort of control for that. But like, for instance, the conservatives have been really dining out on this talking point of the worst unemployment in the G7, where it's really not true. Uh, it's just the fact that we count ours a little more precisely in different ways than the U S does. And some other countries do. So, you know, not, 
not so good. Where this really fell apart for me was the change in public sector borrowing as a percentage of GDP 2020 <laughs> uh, metric they had because, of course, two two fronts here. First of all, Canada had a remarkably low debt-to-GDP ratio. As Bill Morneau, RIP, was always fond of saying, Canada has the lowest debt-to-GDP ratio in the G7. So any increase was going to look bigger as a percentage if you were a low indebted country. The other thing is that if I told you that we are actually paying less interest in debt on federal government debt this year than we were last year, even with the, you know, 400 odd billion or however much that has been spent over the last year, I, a lot of people would have a hard time believing that intuitively, but it is in fact true, um, which I have a hard time, like, I don't know. <laughs> I feel like if I were doing this index, I would perhaps weight the disease misery a little more highly, and I would I would weight the deficit hysteria a little less, if it were me, you know? Uh, but fair enough, you know? People gotta, people gotta eat, and they gotta get their headlines, and I, I respect that. I, I myself eat by making headlines, in, in, in a sense, so... <laughs> I, you know, I can, you can't really begrudge begrudge a player his game, you know. Uh, but yes, all that to say, not a, not a hugely impressive effort from the McDonald Laurie Institute. Though there isn't a kernel of an interesting idea here of sort of normalizing the stuff across countries and, and really seeing who did a good job and who did a bad job. But I think the disease stuff is to, to me it is like implausible that New Zealand would be number two. You know, like I'm sorry, they they, they won, or like. Sweden, which has a far worse disease misery uh, number than we do, but still come in at number four. And it's like, they made the choice that a lot of people would die, <laughs> you know? And it's like, I don't know. That to me sounds worse than like what we had in some ways. So all that to say. Over to you. Aitzen has advanced to the castle age. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, I mean, you're right. Uh, to the extent that anytime you make any of these trackers, uh, you are making what amount to arbitrary decisions around how you're going to... Or at least editorial decisions. Sure. You know? Wh whichever. Yeah. Around how you are going to weigh things. And coming from L MLI, there is heavier weighting on the economic uh, elements of it than uh, the yeah. disease and sort of human impact. Do yes. I agree with you? Well, it's funny if he's in human impact. You know, if you are someone whose parent, uh, a relative, family member of any sort, has died from COVID nineteen, then uh, I suspect you are going to feel very differently about this uh, than you know other people who haven't been impacted. Uh, in, in yes, similar ways, I, and I totally. Yeah, like the situation in long-term care homes, for instance, oh, and I don't want to like really blame it any order of government because it's everyone's fault. Like was horrendous and and one of the worst. In yeah, fact, like the, the vast majority uh, of what went wrong yeah. in Canada was around long-term care. I, I think is a pretty established yeah. and other congregate living. Yeah, sites. a pretty established point. Uh, yeah. at, yes, you know this far. But like, if you look, so I, I sort of buried the lead here is that we come in eleventh of fifteenth on this index, and if you kind of look at the sort of the little bar chart. It's like you see that there's kind of like a, a clustering of the disease misery index around 60 to 70 uh, around this kind of like rank. And Canada's is at 35, which is just like much lower and takes you kind of closer to like the top five, top seven, give or take. 
But then it's just like a huge red bar on the like COVID response misery and the economic impact misery, which kind of makes you think that like as a clear outlier in the sort of like where it falls on the kind of league table here that they constructed the index around making it look bad. <laughs> uh, so yeah, you know, all that to say. Uh, happy to leave that one there. Indeed. Uh, the other piece we want to talk about was uh, a piece by by Sean Spear, who is a former former Harper. Was he was he in PMO PMO policy yes, guy? Was. Yeah. Uh, anyway, former Harper PMO policy guy uh, has sort of uh, branded himself and established himself as kind of one of the the leading conservative policy thinkers in the country in the last couple so, of years. So let, let me uh, which let me set him. more stage there, right? Um, Sean Spear and Robert Eslay um, are both sort of are, are peers from different governments. Uh, Robert Eslay yes. was the budget director under the early years of the Trudeau government uh, for Bill Morneau. And Sean Spear was uh, an economic policy advisor, I believe, in uh, Harper's PMO for a number of years. Um, Robert Eslay beforehand was an academic. Sean Spear now is an academic. I, I believe he's affiliated with the Monk School. Um, whereas Robert Eslay has uh, turned over to uh the private sector was at BlackBerry and is now with the yeah. CEO. He's a, he's a job, cr- job and value Business creator. Council of Canada um, pushing for a Canadian version of DARPA is actually the latest thing I saw him quoted on. Uh, yes. Um, <laughs> but together, so they sort of joined forces. And I know this will be sort of rich to the, uh, the NDPers of the gang who will refer to their favorite rhyme, uh, liberal Tory, same old story. Um, have joined forces to write a number of pieces, some long form, some short form, around suggested policy directions for the country that sort of both... Yeah, like to give one example, they wrote a a long piece about uh, industrial policy for um, the Public Policy Forum. And yes, as you say, it was titled. New North Star, yep. Two, in fact, because they they did one a couple years ago. Uh, And then, uh, yeah, as you say, the the DARPA thing, which is... uh, Certainly, well, I would not rate as highly that is serious as Robert S. Everyone, Lane's but yes. writing for the Business yeah. Council of Canada. Or the what, oh, okay, sorry, I, just, yeah. I I thought Spear was involved. In that not, not to my knowledge. Um, Carry so, on. All, all that to say, we've had this sort of dy- dynamic duo in the Canadian policy environment. They've really been shaking things up, and they're notable for the amount of traction that they, as sort of two individuals writing in this space, have received which I think is safe to say is almost greater than any other people writing in the policy space in Canada. For yeah, and as, as we've said, it's not a big space. I, well, let's say <laughs> for the last decade. Um, maybe yeah. someone has a slightly longer memory than me can think of sort of a comparable example. Um, but the policy environment in Canada is not huge. Uh, and you have two notable former staffers writing long-form pieces over uh, a number of years and they have grown uh, gathered a lot of traction and they are sort of con- uh, continuous voices on the policy f- circuit in canada the, the webinar circuit as it, as it now exists Ugh. <laughs> webinars used to be so awful and now they are just date they were day still awful life. yeah but they're still awful nothing has changed <laughs> there the quality is still bad so 
Sean Spear, so that, that is all context for who uh, both Robert S. Lane and Sean Spear are, but this is Sean... Robert S. Lane does not appear this, in this film any this further. this is for so. Sean Spear's piece <laughs> in the National Post, entitled, uh, Conservatives and Liber- Liberals are too ideological and it is hurting democracy. Uh, take it away yes. with the content of the piece. Sure. So... What he talks about is that there there's polarization, which, you know, he's not the first person to point out, for, for sure. Uh, and, and I think that that's not, like, a particularly interesting thing. But what he settles on is that there there's increasing urban and rural polarization. And that that expresses itself through partisan sorting, where the liberals win overwhelmingly, and the NDP to some extent overwhelmingly in urban areas and the conservatives win overwhelmingly once again with the ndp kind of playing an odd straddling role overwhelmingly in rural areas um so like i i think he's he's correct you know like there's there's not a, a way to look at the map of canada and think otherwise the electoral map that is um so that that kind of is what it is uh his solution to it i think is not in a new one either though it is interesting to see people reviving the idea and his idea is basically that political parties should relax their kind of ideological and communications you know commitments and parameters and i'll be more you know allowing candidates to take their own positions etc and one thing he points out you know, he points to, for instance, Labour and the Conservatives in the UK, where they have a lot more intra-party dynamic tension over, you know, even quite serious issues, uh, like Brexit, having pro and anti-Brexit people in both of those parties. Um, and then saying, you know, if they did this, it would be good for, for Canada because you'd get less polarization. One, he, he kind of sneaks in a line near the end of here that I think is the really, really critical one, because I remember this dominating the debate over Michael Chong's Reform Act however many years ago that was now seven six seven uh the news media will need to resist the temptation to treat every instance of political or policy entrepreneurship as a major controversy that shows evidence of weak leadership or caucus upheaval now astute readers of news media may note that over the last week if you if you did a little 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 erin o'toole google search for instance you would find about eight articles uh every day about uh does erin o'toole have the confidence of his caucus uh all that to say that we have an incredibly leader-centered politics uh, in that any deviations from the leader are taken as by the media as signs of, of disunity and lack of leadership and all of that. And I think this is a bit of a putting the cart before the horse in that I don't know how you sort of do this idea of like having bigger tent parties and overlapping tent parties without the sort of instinct of media to cover it as existential uh to continue like i you you kind of have to solve that problem first so i don't know if i agree with you in terms of solving that problem first i think it can be a question of normalizing it and as it happens more often let me use the example of nader skin smith i don't know if his dissensions from the liberal party line are covered as frequently um, as they were in early days. My impulse is to mm-hmm. say they aren't, but I don't have sort of an, an analytical paper I can point you on. Uh, I can point you to Randall. No, I, I think you're, I think much, you're right. right. And uh, that's an in, it's an interesting case to point to because he and a couple other people 
in a couple caucuses are then sort of like they say, oh, well, that's that. Yeah, guy. it's it's a maverick right? caucus but like, is sort of what it becomes. Yeah, the the mavericks, the guy who's always going to, or the guy or gal, um, who's always going to disagree. But I think there could be a lot more potential over time for that to represent a larger portion of caucus, sort of normalizing that your caucus yeah. is outspoken. Um, but that's not the problem for me. The pro- No, and I, yeah, I was going to turn the page over to the idea that like, if you will, yeah, I'll, I'll let you take this one away. So the, the problem for me is, so I agree, urban rural. Um, my question is, is this the correct place to start or even necessarily the easiest place to start in terms of addressing polarization? And does it, would, would the end effect of what he's recommending address polarization the way he's hoping it would? And I am inclined to say almost no to both of those. You know, opening the tent wider is great, um, but slackening the criteria around nominations and, and who is ultimately confirmed um, is something that I don't know what it would look like in practice. Well, how much difference would it actually make, I think, is the real question you have to ask yourself there. Because if you allow slightly more conservative liberals to run in rural ridings and slightly more, uh, you know, left of center conservatives to run in urban ridings, I think those people, like, the assumption he makes is that those people would somehow stand a greater chance of winning. But the reality, as has been empirically measured several times, is that candidates don't really make a big difference, Uh for the most yeah, part. Yeah, the, the, the uh, commonly uh, cited statistic is that, you know, star candidates, 5%. and that's not what we're talking about, yeah. can move about 5% of the vote. But that's not really what we're yeah. talking about. We're not talking about star candidates. We're talking about candidates that are no, we're talking about the more average, in line yeah, like, with, the, with either urban or rural constituencies. Um, yeah, and like, let's say you put a guy who's like 30% more liberal running in Toronto Centre for the Conservatives. That guy still gets smoked. <laughs> like, he doesn't win. Uh, so it's, uh, in that respect, like, I just have a hard time seeing this matter. So let, let me turn it uh, to because the voters side. Go ahead. Which is that you gather more candidates or that you would see more candidates who, let's say, have undesirable perspectives. Um, more who are citing kooky websites who are sort of really out there and represent a liability for the party. Not in disagreeing yeah. with sort of established norms, party policy, things along those lines, yeah. but really just having sort of insane views. Well, and that's that usually, like, that used to be the case when things were more open is that, like, and this is why parties have, have gone the other way, is because you would get so many liabilities running for you in an and, election. And the liabilities, to be clear, are not people with slightly more liberal or more conservative views than the norm within their party. It, the, yeah, it's people who are like... The, the centralization, the, the cracking you know, down on nominations and the tight control of nominations has been to prevent people who are not liabilities in the sense of their um, their orientation. Yeah, they are 20%. Like They think corporate taxes should be low <laughs> instead of non-existent. But it's <laughs> the... They are really out there. They are, you know, picket for any party... Um, there are the extremist views that obviously the parties don't want represented because they dominate the headlines. Um, and that is a very yeah, and different... as we've often said before... That is a very different problem 
than having individuals who do not represent or who are off sort of the the mean of their party line yeah because in fact that does and like that already kind of happens to some extent like you, you do see this phenomenon it's just that those people tend to not win because they're running in areas where their party doesn't tend to win and people tend to vote on a party line and not for a candidate despite what people say at the door they are they are lying they don't vote for the candidate they vote for the party i well i've i've been in elections trying to compel voters at the door to vote for the candidate and not the party uh you know at the end of the day it's insert x candidate's name on the ballot it's about who you trust it's gonna it's about who you're gonna represent yeah that all that all sounds good but i'm I'm still voting this way all right Yes, and I think a lot of this, in like I, I sort of like zooming out onto what he looks at the axis of sort of polarization being, is you know he says many urban and rural Canadians actually share many common views on matters of economics, culture, and society, and it's like that is kind of true, uh, and then there are key differences on a handful of issues, including the state of the economy, climate change, immigration, and diversity. That is a really key one. Values and tradition, another key one, and trust in government, an extremely key one. The thing is, is that people have sort of created partisan and political identities on the axis of, in particular, immigration and diversity, values and tradition, and trust in government, with climate change sort of being a trust in government issue, if you ask me, based on how voters actually treat it. And, like, that to me is not something, like, because it is so intensely a politics of the personal and a politics of, of, I mean, culture is a way to put it that I think is... How I usually say it, I don't think it's a perfectly accurate way to put it, but I do think that the, the driving sort of political divide is really on on issues of culture and issues of affect in, in the sense of, of immigration, diversity, values, tradition, trust in government, and that you can't really undo that kind of polarization unless you start to decrease the salience of those issues. The issue is that the liberals in particular, I think, really like elections being decided along that very personal feeling axis because it lets it because it lets them bully other left of center parties by saying you have to vote for us or the really mean and nasty conservatives will win. Uh, And the conservatives, I think, have realized that appealing to this stuff is the live wire that gets their their donors to cough up money. Um, So. Two, so two, it's very hard to undo two, that. Two points here. One, <laughs> I absolutely agree with you. It strikes me as a weird point to address polarization. Is like if you look at polarization in society, all the way from you know radicalization on the internet, YouTube. I'm talking about you. Um, all the way through to how it manifests itself in Parliament. The point I would not start at, never start at, and would not make in my top five would be party nominations. That just strikes me yeah. as, you know, the wrong place to start in terms of tackling It's, it's any not of a this. lever for that problem. No, it, it's really not. <laughs> um, and then, sorry, your final point, which is what I was going to comment on, was... Do you remember? The point about uh, being polarized on the axis of culture rather than other stuff and uh bullying left of center parties and to blah 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 yes, that stuff. E- exactly that one um so i mean one of the problems and this is perhaps where one of the other areas i would start addressing um the same problem that he is trying to tackle in a different way would be that the conservative party is a party that has won electorally um in, in recent history 
only under Stephen Harper um, for, you know, once in 20 some odd years. Um, and its prospects going into the future are in question because the dynamics look like they need a majority or nothing. And they're having a hard time breaking through that 30% threshold right now. Yeah. The, the Conservative Party will, you know, even if they were able to win a minority government, there is still really an existential problem of whether or not they would ever be able to govern with a minority government. Um, yes, because you, you take you take this parliament and you just flip the liberal and conservative and still a liberal uh, number of seats. And it just doesn't. Yeah, it just doesn't and work the, for the this conservatives. This is something that the conservative sort of establishment has been really unwilling to address as close as they get to addressing this is to say give us a majority um and you know there was this conversation at the end of the last election uh albeit very briefly when there was maybe the polling indicating that a majority was possible it was really minority majority or nothing um but that's not the case and that's a central problem the conservatives need to reckon with one of the things i find that's at the core of that issue is the fundraising model of canadian elections in canada that the fundraising model is the short-term incentives are in terms of addressing things in hyper-polarized ways, um, which are very hard for a party leader to reverse or overcome. It is very hard for a party leader to start cracking down or reversing the tactics and the methods used for party um, for party engagement on social media, because engagement is one of the yeah. metrics that uh, strategists will point to as a sign of well-being, as well as uh, for fundraising dollars, because both of those things, engagement and fundraising, come from the same place. They come from polarization. They come from getting people angry. Um, but yeah, because I mean, you, it's very hard to go to a party member. These are the same hurdles that are thrown up, particularly for the Conservative Party, as barriers to them ever being able to govern as a major uh, as a minority yes. government in in the ways they haven't passed yeah. in the past. It's very hard to go to a party member and say, uh, you know, the, the carbon tax is, is suboptimal and I think uh, it's, it's unfortunate they've chosen to go this route. Please give me $20. They'll go, well, I don't know if that's really worth giving you $20. If you say it's Justin Trudeau has declared war on your way of life, then you're like, ah, shit, I guess I better give you $20 fucking dollars then. Christ, that sounds bad. Like, it's just, that's, that's kind of how she goes. And like, uh, it, look, like, I think the the current fundraising model we have right now uh, is better than than when con corporations could just pour unlimited amounts of money to whatever party Unions they wanted to. Unions and corporations, I will remind you. Unions and corporations. Though I would make the distinction, somewhat trollishly, that unions are democratic civil society <laughs> organizations run on democratic principles, where corporations are one share, one vote. So very, very different kind of governance structures there. And I sorry, think there's more legitimacy uh, sorry, one share, to one vote democratic sounds a lot side like organizations of donors. Which sounds a lot like our first-past-the-post model, baby. Woo, woo. And, woo. Uh, but at any rate, all that to say that it's not a, you know, it's better than what came before. But uh, I think if you, if you want to defang the sort of... Uh, vitriol that comes from having to to go to your members and, and the general public all the time asking for money uh and having to sort of resort to you know things that will grab their attention in a very uh, attention saturated media environment um you need to think a little differently and people have talked about public financing of elections to some extent which i think is, is sensible and in, in some contexts so, 
but at any rate, that would be a place I would start the conversation rather than nominations. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with that. And let me just propose one uh, one theory I've been toying with over the years, um, which is not directly related to fundraising, but sort of close enough, um, which is the technological nuking of all party apparatuses. Um, yeah, you really do. Yeah, like this one. You, you light up the big EMP and you absolutely destroy all the databases held by the parties in which they're carefully crafting, um, you know, personality profiles for every voter in Canada. What, yeah, just back to clipboards, no, 100%, everyone. 100%. Get out there and yeah. fully 100% supportive of that. And I honest to God think it makes political sense as well. Basically, what we have is we have parties fundraising like as much as they possibly can to build the biggest databases possible um, to gather the most information. They intentionally carve out laws to exclude themselves from them so that they can do these things uh, in violation or in contravention of what normally the privacy act would apply. But what I think it, it requires, what a, you know, a crafty political party could do is basically stop, spending money on their database for two years the other parties spend it this this is just the political incentive in order for anyone to do it um and then you nuke it you make it illegal for political parties to do any of this stuff it's very sellable to the voters that you don't want political parties um to be building out personality profiles on you and all the creepy shit that these apps do um and it sets everyone to the exact same place um which is not an arms race over big data um, which is the the present sort of state of affairs. And it really changes the game in terms of how our elections are run and what we do in terms of election. And it really set, sets it yeah. to an old-fashioned model, which I think in many ways is better. And there's really nothing yeah, lost I... for me aside from... And like, there's nothing lost except for the perceived edge that parties claim to have over other parties. like The missile gap. Yeah, like parties love... You know, talking about <laughs> the technological benefits of this database and investing literally millions of dollars, sometimes in failed experiments on their databases. Um, and if you just nuke all of that and you send everyone back to clipboards, it really becomes the old fashioned model of let's just put ads out. Let's film good television ads. Let's lean on tools that already exist. And the tech inclined it sort of people, it sort of makes you broadcast yeah, wider. 100 percent. And right, the, like the tech inclined uh, yeah. people are literally having are like shivering with rage at this idea um because their lives (laughs) for 10 years has been building these databases liberalist uh i was about to say geds but that's not the right one (laughs) that's different uh sims is the conservative one that's another kind of liberal database one is minivan or something like that which is the least advanced no Populist. populist rather minivan is the liberal Sorry. one or it's the the app they use Sorry, I yeah liberalist was the am i mixing that up it, it's the database but the app they used to go canvassing okay. is called minivan uh, all of these yeah it's based on the democrats sure. van. nuke yeah. them all set us all back to the stone age in terms of technology and honest to god that would have a much bigger impact than changing nominations I will... and it could be done with a stroke of a pen and giving political advantage to the political party that does it at least in the short term because your opponents would have spent millions of dollars on their database in the interim. Which would be pretty funny. Uh, the one the one caution I, I no would No cautions, I would put and that is the this. end of the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's more just on the, the, what, the effect of this. So let's say you did what many people have been asking for for years and ended the carve-out for political parties in Pipita. And you said, privacy law now applies to you like it does to, to everyone else. Uh, 
There is a place where this is the case called British Columbia, which you may have heard of, uh, where their privacy law does uh, incorporate political parties. And elections are basically the same there, which I guess is kind of like good and bad news in the sense that like you can protect people's privacy and also just run elections basically as normal. But unfortunately, you would have to go a little further to to EMP like the end of the Matrix or not the end of the Matrix, the end of uh, Fight Club uh all of the the political party databases there are a lot of emps the ship the nebuchadnezzar has a lot of emps in the matrix so that's an an apt analogy as well oh that's true right they shoot at the little squids uh i can't remember what they call them but yes they they turn off they sit tight they emp the ship or the the squiddy boys as they come the the tentacruels if you will they're they're very good (laughs) real 90s deep cuts today (laughs) uh yeah i mean this has always been my like solution for this segment of and and it solves a lot of privacy issues it solves a lot of like creeping big government problems for me um but you would really have to have a firm hand over the party apparatus that is just going to say we invested 10 billion 10 million dollars in this over the past five years you can't possibly do this well guess what the liberals are doing it better than us um it's going to continue to be this big time suck and energy suck and it artificially pumps the amount of fundraising we need to do and all the rest of it for the exact same result. Let's just torpedo everything and get off the treadmill is, is really my solution at the end of the day. But make everyone do it at the same time. Yeah, it, it, no, you don't no single party is going to <laughs> EMP themselves independent of it. So no. it requires a governing party willing to EMP everyone. And you know when the conservatives <laughs> did the fundraising version of the EMP, um, it was... Yes clearly to their that is actually benefit, that's a good comparison because right? it 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 was an impact that was like as consequential as this probably would be if but not more. not it was as consequential in some senses but not others um the conservatives well, yeah, sure, got the most, along some dimensions yes, yes. but I'll, I'll note those dimensions because i think they're relevant and important the conservatives got the most benefit out of it in terms of their sources of funding uh, proportionately yeah the conservatives were the single largest beneficiary of the per capita subsidy or the per vote subsidy i suppose is uh the actual name um relative to the other parties but the smaller parties the ndp the greens others um received more from the per vote subsidy as a proportion of their total fundraising so the conservative yeah. defense at the time was you know this is hitting us as hard as anyone um but This would, in fact, be more balanced relative to the ongoing arms race between the conservatives and the liberals, where both parties are spending, you know, no one knows for sure because party finances aren't that public um, in terms of how they how they allocate dollars. Um, But I think you can say a comparable amount of money. And so all it would take would be one party gaining powder power with the intent to just nuke this thing just absolutely nuke it and let's be done with it and then it would be very hard to i would hope to reverse that change for a party to say we want to have databases on citizens again and it would be just such a refreshing change because i don't think citizens realize how creepy these apps are at the end of the day yeah if people had a yeah like how the sausage is made is not always pretty that people Um, are like walking up to a driveway Maybe you're not home. Maybe they're evaluating the bumper sticker you have on your car and giving you a political a political ranking based on that. Like there's all like you yeah. Can, well, people always said look for strollers, right? Because then it's young strollers parents, look for you, bumper yeah, stickers. Every data point matters. Are they driving trucks? What is it like? Done. Done. Yep. That's another actually. That's another <laughs> one. That, like is used a lot. 
yeah, and like from the, I, I'm kind of of two minds about this. Because, well, not in the sense that I, I fundamentally disagree because I, I do think that like we are, I'm of two minds in this way. I either think that this stuff is basically bad for democracy in the sense that like you are not really talking to people as citizens anymore. You're talking to them as data points that you've sort of assembled an aggregate of and you pick the little things that you think will be speak to the it will go to their lizard well, brains and tickle one, that one one point or just make one and here, point here's the flip okay first, go ahead. is that the entire conversation has shifted from persuading people to mobilizing people which has been a huge yeah. detriment to like our political system is that it then becomes about voter mobilization and voter suppression let's not talk to the people that we have identified as zeros in the database um and let's just glaze over them because it's more efficient it's sort of like the the debates around economic efficiency while jobs are being lost like well so long as things are more efficient who cares what happens yeah exactly like there is there is an externality there the other side of it is that like there's is this stuff at the margin kind of snake oil right like people talked a lot about the cambridge analytica stuff and like i i did more work than on this than than many people in canada did it's uh, not hard to be an expert on anything in canada no indeed and uh what i came to the conclusion to is that there was a lot of of shady financing uh and like the work was oriented in in some sense around voter suppression quite actively and sort of like disengagement messages which i think is is bad (laughs) like just very but at the end of the day all the stuff about like oh the person they they know your personality that was kind of bullshit like that like it was really like a couple of percentage points kind of thing and not like that significant sure, it, it is uh, like they, they were hyping themselves up to sound very like bond villainy but it was very much no but it, it is for now at least right like cambridge cambridge analytica was how many years ago now it seems like it was just no oh, geez like five, that, that's six, sort of my yeah. point right is how have ai systems developed in the past six years and the answer is probably exponentially like the the difference in what Cambridge Analytica was claiming to do and could do was certainly large, but it is not implausible at all today that those technologies as they were pitching them. So like that, I'm less hung up on that there was there was a gap. Self driving cars are around there the corner, baby. Ga- well, no, there's a difference though. Self driving cars <laughs> are a very different problem than large databases that are able to accurately predict um, people's. Uh, voting intention or likely voter intention based on the 50 different things they've liked on Facebook, right? Like that's a lot of that is more statistically uh, plausible than LIDARs that can see through rain and snow accurately and see road (laughs) signs and like, don't, don't get me wrong. We are making advances in a lot of these spaces. Um, And in four, you know, elections evolve in increments in Canada of roughly four years how quickly the technology is going to change between elections is going to scale up dramatically um, in terms of these databases and the amount of information and their cumulative over the years. And none of this is good, folks. Absolutely none of it. Nuke them all, just EMP, and put us back to uh, clipboards is 100% what Clipboard I'm going to of. Well, there we go. I think we'll we'll leave that there. Is there you I don't want the door knockers on their app. To talk about uh, databases for twenty Sorry, minutes. are you this person and you've been living at this residence <laughs> for how long? And last year, it seems like we mobilized your vote to vote conservative. And horrible, absolutely horrible. 
There you have it, folks. Uh, that will, I guess, that will do it for us today. Any? Uh, did you did you have a beverage? Uh, I had a beer from Signal Brewing in Belleville. Uh, it's actually not in Belleville; it's a small town outside of Belleville, but close enough. Called Gamma Ray. It's their Imperial Coffee Stout. Um, was delicious. Great brewery in his a historic. Uh, I think a Canadian club. Um, yes, you've been there. No, it's like a, it's like a where it's like a toll or like a sort of like um, a customs and excise warehouse. I yes, think. but it was used for bottling whiskey during Prohibition or oh, okay. something like that. Um, okay, but it, it's a really nice gore- building, gorgeous and, uh, building, yeah, like fantastic uh, brewery. Etienne and I have been there several times. Right on the river, it's very you, lovely. You'd say it's almost from the feudal age. If you. I don't know that I would I'm, say that. I'm just that, trying but... to work in as many plausible <laughs> Age of Empire references as I can. Ah, I see. Minutes. Okay, yeah. Indeed. Uh, I had the Until Then uh, from Dominion City, a Goes with Lime Zest and Tamarind, which is brewed, I think, in collaboration with their friends, apparently, at Fairweather in Hamilton. Oh, I've got three of those coming uh, my way soon. They, these are, I would say, one of the best things I've had from uh, Dominion in quite a long time, which is saying a lot because I like a lot of their stuff. Um, Fairweather, I find to have a lot of interesting beers that have a sort of like, you know, breweries kind of have like a flavor, you know, it's their grain bill sort of give it a kind of like in the hops they kind of use. And I don't love Fairweather's sort of like brewery taste. Um, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you, but you're wrong. I, I like the Bellwoods one, for instance, like I find a lot of Bellwoods beers. I'm like, this is a Bellwoods beer. And I like that taste. Same with Dominion City. I'm like, this is Dominion City beer, and it's it. I enjoy that. The Fairweather one, I find a little a little sickly sweet. Uh, but this one, I don't know what involvement Fairweather had actually in making this, but uh, it is uh, very very good. So there you go. There you go. Also, it's just nice because now we're getting a little better weather, better weather, and like the uh, the sun's out a bit longer, the daylight savings over the weekend. So it's just nice to have a little tropical ish beer. Yeah? I'm looking, it's I'm nice looking forward treat. to obtaining my share of those beers uh, shortly here. So, well, very good. I guess that will do it for the boys in short pants today. Thank you uh, once again for listening. Uh, if you're a long time listener, and th- if you're a first time listener. Uh, Thank you also for listening. <laughs> uh, please recommend the podcast to friends and family and people you think would like the show. In fact, you know, maybe recommend people who wouldn't like the show. You know, challenge them to push their horizons a little bit. Uh, leave us a review at the various places you do that. Uh, all that kind of good stuff. Maybe just tweet at us and tell us you like the show. Because, you know, we, we could we could all go for a little boost around these times. Any, anything to close on? Wolo. <laughs> All right. With that, with that uh, monk uh, sound from uh, from Ken, we will say bye bye. <laughs>